Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered, the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. And there is a theory that if you were to start again from scratch to create a global economy, the first thing you'd do is open a patent office and the second thing you'd do is open an insurance company because economic activity only works if people can protect their intellectual property and take risks. And I don't think enough people in governments understand how pivotal insurance is. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner of the law firm RPC. And in each episode, I'm joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week we have Christopher Croft and we will be discussing the role of the London and International Insurance Brokers Association, known to the world as LIBA. Chris started out as an economist with the Department of Transport before spending 10 years at the FCA, back in the days when it was the FSA, or even perhaps the PIA, um, and for overseas listeners, the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, is the UK regulator for financial services. Chris then spent eight years working with the London Market Group, before in 2016 becoming the Chief Executive of the London and International Insurance Brokers Association, or LIBA. And that's what we're here to discuss today. So Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, very glad to be here. And as far as I can tell, you've never worked directly for um, a broker or an insurer, yet you have ended up at the beating heart of insurance. So so how's that happened? Well, as is the case, I think, for many people, certainly in the London market of insurance, um, it happened entirely by accident. So um, I was on holiday in Santa Fe in New Mexico the morning after the 2006 midterm elections. And... It would have been, it was very early in the morning, probably because of the time difference. My mobile phone started ringing and I had one of those episodes you have on holiday. Shall I answer it? Shan't I? I can't really be bothered. It's going to be someone about work. And then just at the moment where it might have clicked through to voicemail, I answered it and it was a recruitment consultant seeing if I would be interested in the job of what was then the market reform program office. And as with almost all my career decisions, I thought, well, that sounds quite interesting. Why not? And uh, <laughs> a few weeks later, I got offered the job and sort of took it from there. And that then became the, the, the London Market Group, which was uh, instrumental, as I understand it, in organising the development of the electronic claims file. But it wasn't just that that you were involved with, were you? My understanding is that you were involved in a number of other revolutionary projects which have helped transform the market. Could you talk us through those? Yeah, um, I, I like to think we made a bit of a difference. So I would say that the three things I can lay claim to are um, having produced the first London Matters report in 2014. I was also I was the person who filled in the form that incorporated the Placing Platform Limited, which is now the predominant electronic trading platform in London. And I convened the first meeting of the working group to try and develop a way in which insurance linked security business could be written in London. But the London Matters report that you mentioned is something which um, I've looked at over the time. It, it is a fantastic resource, isn't it? It is. Um, I mean, the first report, I would say the first report was the best one. There have been three now, but I would say the first one was the best one. But it had the advantage of novelty for nothing else. And it was the first time or certainly the first time in at least a generation that anyone had done some significant work around what is the London market who are its clients and why what do and don't they value about it so it was part statistical survey part customer survey and i would say so the statistic that the london market is responsible for 25 percent of the city's 
contribution to GDP is probably the single most transformatory statistic that we've, we've ever come up with because that was the thing that made government finally sit up and recognise that we were a valuable and vibrant sector separate from the rest of the city and separate from the rest of the insurance community. So, and, and we needed treating differently in our own right. Well, the, the role of Lieber itself is to uh, represent the interests of Lloyd's insurance and reinsurance brokers. But how does it go about doing that? Basically, what, what is its job and how many brokers are we talking about? So we have 152 organisations that pay us money. But of those 152, I think the things that most people don't appreciate is we only have 18 members who employ more than 100 staff and a third of our membership employ fewer than 10 people. So we really are the city's SME sector. They are small, vibrant, entrepreneurial businesses. And I guess I would say our role splits into more or less neatly into two halves is part lobbyist and part expert analyst and input into market debate. And so in terms of lobbying, it's our role to represent the interests of members to government. We do a lot of work. We have a very active tax working party interrelate with HMRC very successfully around questions around IPT and VAT. Also during the pandemic, we're talking a lot to government around issues like can we get some sort of private-public partnerships that will allow event cancellation insurance to be written again so that we can start holding live music events and conferences and weddings even. Yeah. And we're talking to them about, at the moment, pharmacies administering the COVID vaccine are um, indemnified under the NHS. The the government basically self-insures the NHS for clinical negligence, but they want to pass that back to the private sector when that scheme ends for pharmacies at the end of June. And we're hopeful that we could be part of designing the solution to that. And then we talk a lot to regulators. So my former alma mater, the FCA, we're in constant contact with them. But because of the nature of London, in that Two thirds of the business in London comes from overseas. So it's a very much uh, international export sector. So I spend a lot of my time in international forums. So I'm a director of BPAR, which is the European Federation of Insurance Intermediaries, and also of the World Federation of Insurance Intermediaries. BPAR was our main vehicle for lobbying over the European regulator and the European Commission over the approach to Brexit. And I also have a call once a week with the Council of Insurance Agents of Brokers in Washington because. The U.S. is our biggest market, so regulatory and policy developments in the U.S. are as important to our members as policy developments are here. There's already a British Insurance Brokers Association that acts as a representative body for at least some of the brokers. Why does there need to be one specifically for Lloyd's Brokers? So there always has been an autonomous London Market Brokers Association dating back to 1910, and its relationship with BIBA has fluctuated over the years, but in its incarnation as LIBA, we've been around since 2008. Our members are international-focused global businesses dealing with complex corporate clients. BIBA members are retail brokers dealing with UK domestic consumers, and And that leads you to have quite different interests. So if you take Brexit as an example, all our lobbying effort was focused around trying to find a method that would allow our members to continue to service clients in the EU and bring that business to London. Bieber's focus was on things like green cards for motor insurance. Right, okay. And holiday homes in Spain. So 
it does lead you to have we have common interests and we work very well together and Steve White and I get on very well when we're responding to consultations with regulators we swap drafts to make sure we're on the same page which we always are but we do have different constituencies and different agendas. When you took over in, in 2016 uh, as Chief Executive of Lever, what challenges did you see ahead of you and, and what, what changes did you want to see in your first five-year period, where, where we are now? So I wanted to see Lever as a more proactive voice in the market, a more prominent voice in the market. It did a lot of good work, but it wasn't good at letting people know that. So we've tried to be better at being part of the market debate and increasingly you know, highlighting our interaction with regulators and government to make sure people know that we're we're there fighting their corner I guess and the other thing that's still a work in progress is I really need to highlight to the outside world what it is our members do because what their clients value in their relationship with their broker is the ability for the broker to come in and bring people who know more about their business than them almost and so can help them analyze the full range of risks their firm faces and work out a structured mitigation plan to, to offset those risks only a part of which will be purchasing insurance. A lot of it is about helping them build more resilience into their operations so that they don't need to insure some bits. And it's that range of expertise that, A, makes Lieber members fascinating to work with, mm-hmm. but also now having some quite significant success in highlighting to government that insurance workers could be a really important partner for them in times of crisis because we've got the expertise to help them get to the right solution. So what would you say are the, I'm going to say three key issues, but because one always is meant to have three key issues, but it can be two or four or however many you like. But what are the key issues that you think Lloyd's Brokers are, are currently facing today? So I'll have three and then and then an overriding fourth. <laughs> so uh, the big things on our agenda at the moment are what we sort of refer to as the future way of working and what happens when restrictions are lifted and how we preserve some of the best bits of the old world whilst not rolling back on some of the efficiency improvements that the pandemic has accelerated. We need to bed in our approaches to trading with the EU and people's new Brexit solutions and and ensure that the inevitable teething problems we help them through. It's being part of the debate around the modernisation of the market and the future at Lloyd's and making sure that the client and the broker voice is heard in those debates and that new systems and services are developed with the client in mind and not making it easier for insurers to fill in their regulatory returns. (laughs) But So we're recording this on the 25th of February, so I think I can just about still get away with saying this. So my overarching point is if we'd have had this conversation this time last year, I probably wouldn't have said, that one of our big agenda items would be helping membership through a lockdown caused by a global pandemic. No, no, that's, that's a good point. And that highlights that trade association work is always, to a degree, reactive, and you deal with the crisis at the moment. So it will be those three plus whatever else happens. Well, that was a very succinct answer to go through three key issues. So let's go back a little bit and just kind of unpack each one of those briefly. So the first one was kind of, Maintaining the efficiencies post-COVID. Yeah. So do you think that COVID has actually accelerated efficiencies in the market then? I think it has to a degree. So let's put it another way. The market has carried on functioning and has shown itself to be extraordinarily resilient. And in part, that is 
back to the foundation work, which I kicked off at LMG and I carried through into my role at Libra, which was around bullying people to take up electronic trading. And the fact that we've been bullying and take up electronic trading for the last however, five, six years has really paid off when they've all been stuck at home and had to trade remotely. But it's worked well for existing books of business renewing with relationships with whom brokers have got existing relationships. It is harder to grow business and it's harder to develop new markets without the ability to interact face to face. And I think this is increasingly almost becoming a a lockdown cliche is that collaborative and creative discussions don't work well over Zoom. And, and at the core of what London does and London's role in, in the global insurance market, it's the place that invents new things. So new risks emerge and London finds ways to provide insurance products that cover them. So being collaborative and creative is a vital part of, of the unique function of London. So we do need to get back to EC3 at some point and probably not necessarily five days a week and possibly not even all day. But we do need to be there. We do need to see each other. And the second point you raised was uh, Brexit, which you know, which we now have to accept is a reality. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, how do you perceive the Brexit is going to, as you say, we're, we're in February now, so we're well over a month after it has happened and all the agreements are in place and it, it is what it is now. So how is Brexit going to affect the Lloyds market and your members, the Lloyds brokers? So... We have about 60 of our members now have a new European entity that they have formed in order to be able to carry on servicing business where both the policyholder and the risk are located in the EU. And those entities will have a branch in London and some of the London staff will be either seconded into that branch or dual employed by the London broker. Our members now have a relationship with a local regulator that is developing and often they don't have a lot of experience of trading in the country that they're now located in. So using that BPAR network, we can help them come to terms with the nitty-gritty of European regulation because the main problem is that the insurance distribution directive, which is the EU law that governs our sector, isn't written with the international trade of insurance in mind. So it's not that it specifically impedes it. It accidentally does because it's just, they were thinking about domestically traded motor and home insurance when they wrote it. So it tends to be equivocal at best around what happens when you trade with other countries and particularly what happens when you trade with third countries. So we may hope to revisit that at some stage, but not now. Yeah, we've already seen finance trading some of that going over to continental europe to amsterdam or wherever i mean do you think the brexit is a threat to the london market or is insurance different from banking in that sense i think it is because you should never say never but we have extraordinary expertise concentrated in london to serve a global client base of which the eu is only about 10 percent So if the choice was between relocating expertise to the EU or just cutting them off (laughs) commercially, you just cut them off. And that was a point I did make in various European circles and they they looked angry at me. But but I think it's a reality. And there are still types of insurance that you can purchase in London that you really can't purchase anywhere else and that are quite important. So you need something in the region of two to three billion dollars worth of insurance coverage for 
a large aircraft to take passenger aircraft to take off that expertise is almost exclusively present in London. So London writes 60% of global aviation business itself, but the other 40% is almost all broked through London. So it, you can, with relative confidence, sit in meeting with you know, EU officials and say, unless you can access insurance in London, none of your airlines will be able to take off. And I have a theory that what will actually happen will be the opposite. So in part, only 10% of market business comes from the EU because it's not a market we've tended to concentrate on. We've developed markets in North America and elsewhere more and focused on them more. But now I've got 60 members who've spent quite a lot of money setting up a new company to, to help them access those markets. They're going to want to return on that investment. So I think you might mm. see a renewed focus on developing EU markets. And so slightly counterintuitively, Brexit might lead to us doing more trade than and the third thing you mentioned was the continued modernisation of Lloyd's and, and, and Blueprint 2, by which I, I'm assuming we're not talking about Jay-Z's album, but about the third in, in, in the triumvirate, in, in the trilogy of documents prepared by Lloyd's on, on modernisation, which is all about, as I understand it, delivering end-to-end digital journeys for, for market participants. I mean, as and when that is fully implemented, what do you see as the key changes in that? That's the digital spine, as I believe you're supposed to call it. Sorry, the digital <laughs> spine. <laughs> so, I mean, London is a market where the you know, the expertise and the intellectual capital is extraordinary, and the operational systems supporting that is equally extraordinary, but in a very different way. In that we're still using systems that are, in some instances, 30 years old, and we need to just completely revamp the way we use technologies to support the insurance process. And that needs to be a conversation in which we and our members are very heavily involved because they're the people who bring business to London and they're the people in the main who are the drivers of the way it's processed. So our members interact with the bureau, the collective back office for the insurers, much more than the insurers themselves do. And it's also still true that a broker in London does a large amount more work on behalf of the insurer than we do in any other market. So the processing burden on brokers in London is an impediment in some instances to bringing business here. And we need to completely overhaul the infrastructure that supports processing of business. I think it's around 75% of business is placed in both Lloyd's and company markets. And so you want, as far as possible, a single way of processing that. And that is achievable through the use of common data standards. Mm so that systems can speak the same language, essentially, um, and, and interrelate and integrate. And ideally, you, know, you hit a button in a broker system saying pay premium, and it goes and pays all those markets without you having to tell it to send a certain type of message to a Lloyd's underwriter and a different one to a company underwriter and a third one to a Bermudan underwriter. And at the beginning of, of the, uh, the lockdown number one, I heard a podcast in which you were, were talking about uh, the effect of that on the market. And, and you talked about it being an opportunity for insurance as a whole. And do you think that insurance has successfully taken that opportunity? I think, sadly, probably not yet. I mean, because if the world was to stop now, the one thing people would remember about insurance during the lockdown will be the FCA test cases in the Supreme Court judgment around business interruption insurance. And frustratingly, I don't think insurers covered themselves in glory during that process. I think you know, 
for a, an industry that had the reputation beforehand of using legalese and the small print to try and avoid paying claims, turning up with some of the arguments that they had in those test cases looked like an industry trying to use legalese and the small print to avoid paying claims. And I, I think that's has harmed our reputation. And we're as frustrated about that as, as everybody else, because obviously we're the agent of the client in the market and we want to see clients have valid claims paid. But that said, I think there is still an opportunity for us to recover the position. And I touched upon a bit earlier as the, the work we're doing with government, hopefully try and get live events up and running and help pharmacies administering the vaccine. And there are also advanced plans in process to help ensure the global distribution of the vaccine. And that will hopefully allow us to demonstrate that insurance actually does deliver some social good. I don't know why I always end up quoting Joe Plumeri in these things, but Joe Plumeri, who used to run Willis, one of our larger members, said that what people needed to realise was it wasn't the federal government that rebuilt Louisiana in the wake of Katrina, it was the insurance industry. And it's that sort of message we don't get across enough. And the other area where I think we can, again, demonstrate our sort of social necessity is in climate change, because all those expertise that I was talking about exist in our member firms will be absolutely key to building a greener economy, because part of the conversation they're now having with their clients is, how do you make this more resilient to extreme weather? How do you build a approach to processing that makes you less reliant on fossil fuels? One of our largest members believes that there's only one person in the world who really knows how to build robust and resilient offshore wind farms, and they employ him. So they send him in to clients building wind farm at the beginning, and he analyzes their designs and tells them how to do it better. So just the production of green power is going to be hugely influenced by insurance brokers in the insurance industry. Yeah, no, I agree that nothing happens that can happen without some level of insurance somewhere in the modern world. And and there's a narrative there that is sort of being missed out on at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I can't remember where I saw this, but I mean, there is a theory that if you were to start again from scratch to create a global economy, the first thing you'd do is open a patent office and the second thing you'd do is open an insurance company because economic activity only works if people can protect their intellectual property and take risk. And I don't think enough people in governments understand how pivotal insurance is. And I'm going to quote Joe Plumeri again. Feel free. <laughs> he also used to say that insurance is the DNA of capitalism. And that is quite a nice way of putting it. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And we've talked there about government and politics is your thing, isn't it? That That's kind of outside of work. It's, it's, not, it's not just part of your job. It's, it's your hobby as well, as I understand it. It is, yes. The politics of the Americas in particular. So I was always fascinated by politics and I grew up in the 80s and the great romantic political cause of the 1980s was the uh, Sandinistas in Nicaragua and the, the Americans' attempts to destabilise the Sandinista regime whilst at the time. Um, was, that, was that Oliver North and that, that, that lot? Oliver North was, yes, Oliver North was the, was the baddie. <laughs> and Daniel Ortega was the president of Nicaragua and, and now is again, interestingly. And the Sandinistas did some great things in the 80s. I mean, they eradicated child poverty and they massively increased literacy rates amongst ordinary Nicaraguans. And yet the Americans had decided that they were communists in the way that Americans decide a lot of populist nationalist movements. It became a self-fulfilling prophecy in the 80s because, because the Americans decided they were communists. 
and imposed all sorts of sanctions on them. The only people who would trade with them were the Soviet Union. And so they ended up having to pretend to be communists <laughs> in order to be able to buy oil. So as a result of all that, in the year before I went to university, I went to the 1990 Nicaraguan presidential elections. Went to Central America for about six months, but the focal point was the elections in February 1990. And so I saw Daniel Ortega speak in front of a crowd of half a million people in Managua. Wow. Which was astonishing. I also saw Barack Obama um, speak the night before he was elected, but Ortega remains better. And that's a true testament. That is saying something. Yeah. It was a mesmerizing experience saying he would produce these sort of perorations where he would go, you know, we've eradicated child poverty in Nicaragua. Es buenos y mal, he would go, and the whole crowd would go, buenos. <laughs> and that went, went on for sort of, you know, five or six iterations of that. And then he went, no somos capitalista, no somos socialista, somos sandalista. And that was, <laughs> the crowd went bonkers, at which point the Nicaraguan national baseball team trotted out onto the stage and Ortega signed baseballs and pitched them to them and they would smack them out into the crowd <laughs> followed by searchlights. And it's just like, yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. But that should happen at all political rallies. That, that would be great. Yeah, I, I, I suspect health and safety. <laughs> I have a... Ah, put that to one. That's what insurance is for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, the baseball exclusion will be the next thing. <laughs> So yeah, so that that developed my taste for going to elections, and I've been and was really frustrated last year that I couldn't be. I, I always try and be in America for elections. Um, I have to say, as part of my research, I obviously looked at the the, the Lieber website and and read some of your blogs, which I have to say are absolutely magnificent. They're sort of witty, caustic, thought provoking, everything that you want in a blog. So uh, um, I, I sense that you may be a, a frustrated journalist. Is that right? I like writing, certainly, and in part, and certainly in lockdown, those weekly outputs are, are as much to keep me sane as anything else. And if there is any strategy behind it, it's that I hope that you can make it an entertaining read. People will actually read the dull bits that are updates on regulation and Brexit and whatever. But they're as much to entertain me as anything else. Oh, I, I know that feeling. But anyway, any listeners out there, if you have a quiet 10 minutes, then the, the, the Libra website blogs, well worth the read. I like to think I achieve a level of balanced condemnation as well. They're pretty pretty rude about everybody. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And uh, which, which is as it should be at the moment. That they all, they all deserve it equally. But finally, Chris... A question that I always ask everybody, which is, if a young person were to come to you for advice, I'm thinking about getting involved in insurance, um, what, what sort of message would you give to them? or What, what lessons have you learned over the years? Um, well, firstly, I would think, thank God, because it would be some sign that some of our work is having an effect that young people might be considering a career in insurance, because I'm not sure it's something that they have done greatly up to now. And then, touching on my experience, I would say, that what you'll discover is this is going to be vastly more interesting than you think it is because you will only have scratched the surface of how fascinating London market business is and how it manages to ensure all sorts of very, very complex and fascinating risks that are at the core of how society and the economy functions. And I would emphasize that point about social good, that this is you know, insurance is a service to society as well as a commercial business and that. I think everybody I know in the London market has that at the core of why they like it is because you're doing social good. And then I'd say that in my experience and comparison to 
other sectors, the people are much nicer. And that's always a good thing. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, that is a fantastic note on which to end. So, Chris, thank you so much for that. That was wonderful. Really enjoyable. Thank you so much indeed. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and please rate, review and share it. It really does help. Please also listen to another of our podcasts, Taxing Matters, which is hosted by my brilliant colleague, Alice Kemp. Insurance Covered is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you and I hope you have a lovely day.